Guy Adami here. Welcome back to On The Tape, joined as always by my dear friends Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Today we'll be talking about the all-important jobs report, the wild run in these meme meme stocks, I don't know what that is, and Tesla. Later we'll be going off the tape in an interview with Jeffrey Hirsch, CEO of Stars. Stay tuned, we've got a great show for you today. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. So before we get into all the interesting things that have transpired since the last On The Tape, Dan, Nathan, something happened this past week that hasn't happened in approximately 15 months. Do you know what that is? Well, I was going to say that the Knicks lost a playoff series, but that, that would be a decade since they've actually been in the playoffs, but they did lose a playoff season. That hurts. That was not necessary, Dan, Nathan. No, you know what happened because the two of us were together for the first time on the set of Fast Money in New York uh, City's Times Square this yes. past Thursday. It was great. It was wonderful to be back. There were only three-fifths of us there. Hopefully at some point, all five of us will be back. But that was a good start, as they say, Dan. Yeah, no doubt. I, you know, it was amazing, Guy. It's just like after like one segment in the show, we were all like, oh, it's like we never left a little bit. And so it was amazing. You've been doing that show for 38 years um, from the NASDAQ, longer than yep, the NASDAQ's been around that. in Times yep. Square. But it's also a place where we met Danny Moses. So you and I have had this amazing experience meeting so many interesting investors or people related to finance over the years. It's really amazing to be back. New York feels like it's back. Danny, you had an epic. Epic, epic weekend in New York City last weekend. Is New York epic. City is, is New York City back in your eyes? My age group is not back to New York City yet, <laughs> but New York City is back. I would say anything below 23rd Street, there's action. Above 23rd Street, it's kind of a, a little bit unnerving. You know what the kids call that? Danny, they call it fire emoji. Yeah, downtown is where it's at, man. I, I'll tell you one thing. Last night, I was out in the city for dinner in the village, and then we went for drinks somewhere. Then I walked over the East Village. I found myself home at 1 a.m., and the city is buzzing. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, what are you, 19 years old? I mean, Danny uh, Moses, what does that mean, my age group? What is your freaking age group? I mean, just uh, enlighten me, please. Past 50, right? you know, above 50, and I would say the average age was 25 to 28 and it was three deep at various bars. And the bars actually, while we were there on June 1st, when the clock turned to midnight, bars were allowed to actually stay open till 4 a.m. and reopen at 8 a.m. So if you want to see some, some activity, go to the Spring Street Lounge at 8 a.m. downtown. But no, we had, a, we had a great time. I'm going to put that on my list. Yeah. I'm yeah. Sure I'm yeah. It's great. Not, not on Guy Adami's bucket list at all. Live, okay. live music with a crappy cover band still sounded great everywhere. Well, and at some point, the three of us will be together as well. So the reason why you're getting on the tape a little later today is not because Dan Nathan was out to all hours of the morning. No, it's because of the all-important jobs report that we waited to drop before we tape. So that's where we're going to start right now. We're shortly after the opening here on Friday, an hour into the trading day. The NASDAQ is ripping. The S&P is up 60 bips. And you know what's down, guy? 
the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is trading at 1.57. And, and I also mentioned the VIX is at 16.5 or something like that. So you're seeing equities belt up, bonds down. I mean, this basically just gives the Fed a lot more cover. Now, you guys could say, well, we're likely to see some really amped up jobs data maybe for June and then in July. And then that kind of reverses the narrative, which sets up pretty well for what we're all going to be looking for. We know that there is a June Fed meeting. We know there's a July Fed meeting. There is not one in August, but we know the St. Louis Fed retreat and Jackson Hole is going to be something that all eyes are going to be on. I'd love to hear from Danny Moses, who shares some of my views, Dan. There is no question that certain inflationary measurements that we're seeing are going to be somewhat transitory, but I believe some will be permanent. And to Dan's point, you get like a headline number right now, it kind of people can take a deep breath. I think expectation had risen both for some type of revision to the April report, which was revised up, but not by much. And then the May came in a little under expectations, but again, people were floating 800, 900 a million out there for May. But again, underneath the surface, average hourly earnings up 2%. I realize that's not an immediate thing that you can point to that's going to stick forever. But I will say this, once wages go up, it is the stickiest of all the, quote, transitory things. That's the one that's not transitory. And I go back to this. Corporations have a choice. Pass on these labor price increases to the consumer or eat it. Either way, you're either going to have inflation in the system or lower corporate profits potentially. And the other thing that was really interesting this week is Biden made a call to Larry Summers, it appears. We know that Larry Summers is auditioning. He has been now for 20 years to be the head of the Fed. And so he has a theory out there and he's been talking about wage price spiral and the impact that that could have, like we saw in the late 70s. We've talked about that on the show before, but I think he's sitting waiting as a call option for if someone wants to blame the Fed for all this. Here comes our savior, Larry to kind of save the day. Well, I don't know if he's going to be the savior, but I mean, I agree with you that he's clearly been auditioning this for a number of different administrations. And you know what? He's going to wind up getting it. But, you know, we're going to have Peter Bookvar on our on the tape at some point. And I just want to sort of read his commentary because it sort of sums up what Danny was just saying. If you allow me to do this for a minute or so, this is from Peter Bookvar. Bottom line, after losing 22.4 million jobs last March and April, the economy has added back 14.8 million. So while there are still 7.6 million below where we were, it is becoming crystal clear that the main problem with the labor market right now is the supply side, and we're seeing higher wages in response to encourage people back. Amen. Because that's what we have been seeing. You know, we've had four different major companies over the last month announce that, you know what, regardless of what's going on politically, you can debate all you want about minimum wage. We're raising our minimum wage. And you've seen it anywhere from $15 to $18.5. And that's just the beginning. That's the tip of the iceberg. The only way to get people back to work is to pay them more. Wage inflation, to me, is the last piece of this puzzle. And I think that's when you're going to start to see things really rock on the inflation side. Yeah, but I think it was happening anyway. We were already seeing this move towards higher minimum wages. We were also seeing this move towards reshoring of a lot of jobs, which meant kind of higher wages for some unskilled sort of labor. I, mean, I agree with you. And I think what Danny said is a really important point. If the one thing that we can all agree on that structurally wage inflation is going to be here to stay, then corporations with gross margins basically at all time highs and balance sheets in great shape and interest rates really low are going to have to make a decision here. It's either passing through those costs to consumers whose balance sheets are in very good shape right now. Now, that may change very quickly as we see more things to spend money on and obviously the potential for expanded unemployment benefits and that stuff to run off. I'll just say this. 
a year ago at this time, Guy, I felt really adamantly that one of the major scars from this pandemic was going to be structurally higher unemployment. I know that leading up into the pandemic, I think we were below 4%, which was what, a 60-year low or something like that. And I also remember at the time that we were thinking, well, just wait until the robots are coming in and they're going to take all the jobs and big tech's deflationary and we're going to have UBI, universal basic income, because we're going to have to keep these people fat and happy. Well, that's essentially what all this stimulus has done. It's been universal basic income. We just don't know. We're just like literally in the 13th year of this crazy experiment and every curveball that gets thrown at it, we know what the playbook is and they continue to iterate on the very easy monetary and fiscal policy. So to me, I'm with you guys in the fact that we have no idea how this experiment ends. It's not going to be pretty, but maybe at this point it never ends. And at least through the eyes of the stock market, it's all good. They took one vial of the experiment away, I guess, this week. The Fed felt like they had to do something, I guess, and they announced they're going to be selling the corporate bond portfolio of which they were purchasing through BlackRock last spring during crisis to tighten up credit spreads a little bit. They own $13.8 billion total, which is not a lot in a $10 trillion corporate market. So that's they finally did something. I would say that is a, a fly on the wall, but they did send something. It's, it's a fly on the wall, Dan, but is it a sign like that Tesla song? I know you've got a Jones for Tesla. I don't know if you enjoyed the band, but they did that remake of Sign Sign. I can sing it for you if you want. But is that yeah. is that the Go first on. salvo of something bigger here? I mean, is that just sort of a test balloon, as they say? They've already thrown a couple tests out there, but again, dot plot coming. Again, not to harp on that, but it is going to be in a week or so, a week and a half. And so that'll be the next big thing. And so right now we're maybe in bliss. But I will say this, as far as wage increases go, no one's waiting for the federal government to mandate a federal wage price increase because all the companies and states are already doing it themselves. And I would just say when you have McDonald's and Chipotle and Bank America all raising to $15, things like that, wages never go back down. You can lay people off, but wages don't go back down. And I will say this, if you look at Procter & Gamble and all these huge consumer product companies, they're saying that these supply chain shortages could be in place for much longer. And what is the definition of transitory? I don't know. Is it two quarters? Is it three quarters? Obviously, at some point, things normalize. But I don't think people realize that when you make a tube of toothpaste somewhere, the cap, the ingredients, and the container all come from three different places. And the problem has been getting that cap. You can get all two out of the three and getting these things done at these factories. There's an issue because COVID created a pull forward in e-commerce and a pull forward of people not just hoarding products, but buying products. And and once you start buying more products, you start using more products and that becomes self-fulfilling. So I don't know. I feel like we are going to see sustained inflation in various pockets and some will be transitory. I agree with Daniel. Oil could drop back down and things like that. But Man, things are getting more expensive by the day, for sure. No doubt about it. And when we see it, Guy just mentioned last week, $100 at the pump for his big gas guzzler. I don't have that problem. I have the Mustang Mach-E, EV I'm sure it's there. very cool. You're yeah, great. but I think that just because we have wage inflation, and this is the one point I think is really important, doesn't mean that the pie of jobs here is going to be bigger. So we may have higher wages for lower-end jobs for a part of the workforce that maybe we go back to the fact that, oh, yeah, automation and all this sort of stuff is going to take a big part of those jobs. So to me, I just think you frame it perfectly, Danny, is that what is transitory? Is it a couple months? Is it a couple quarters? Could it be a couple years? One thing that we know from the Federal Reserve in the post-financial crisis period is that it took them years to taper their bond purchases. It took them years to come off zero interest rates. So to me, I think if you're looking at this through too close of a lens here, you know what I mean? Like that may be the wrong thing to think about it. And here's the other thing. Again, the stock market 
market doesn't care. Like right now, they don't care. Here's a question for you, Guy Dami. Ah, I like it when you ask me questions. This is fun. So we have this Fed meeting next week, and Danny just mentioned dot plots, and Danny will be the one to, to kind of give us a sense whether he thinks anything has changed on those plots. But what do you think market expectations are right now? Because you have often said over the last month, when we got that April jobs report that was a disaster, what did we see? We saw yields go down precipitously, one point four six. Now they bounced back a little bit. Maybe they got to one six six or something like that. But again, here we are at one five seven after the second consecutive disappointing jobs report. You think rates are going much higher? That would be the case if the Fed is going to hint to tapering sooner than expected. But the data doesn't support it right now. So what are the expectations in the next week's meeting? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I would submit the data absolutely supports it, but that's what makes markets. But what this jobs number gives the Fed is air cover, as they say. Exactly. This is the exact number that they needed. By the way, the prior jobs number was the exact number that they needed because it takes some of the focus off of what they've been doing and it puts them elsewhere. It gives them air cover for at least the next couple of months. So I don't expect anything different, Dan. But I do think, listen, I'll say it again. You know, I think rates are going to remain stubbornly high. This does give them cover, but only for so long. What if rates 10 years are telling you that the Fed is actually going to taper? Why do I say that? Just because the fact that the Fed's going to taper doesn't mean that the bond yields on the 10 years should technically go up. They should logically. But what if that's telling you that that was going to create a havoc in the stock market? money flying back into the bond market, and yet we, the curve starts to flatten out and potentially invert. I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but if you look at Fed fund futures, which are actually already forecasting where the dot plot is going to go, it's not out of the question that it could be a flight to safety. It's not today, obviously, with both the stock market and the bond market up in the market today. You're not seeing that today, but just think ahead to potentially a stagflationary type of environment that could happen. Again, I don't want to be the bear here, but it maybe is telling us something that's not what we're looking at. Through the lens of the stock market, I think it's really interesting that you have the S&P 500 within, as Guy would say, a whisper of its prior all-time highs. If you look over the last couple of months, where some of the data, the economic data, has been fairly mixed, the market has gone sideways. The S&P has been higher the side of 4,200. I think this data right here, if we get any more soft data, that's not disastrous, but it's just soft. Again, giving the Fed a little more cover here, then you've got a breakout coming in this market into the quarter end. Like That's kind of the way... I would see it. And then I'm looking across the board and I'm seeing the NASDAQ screaming, outperforming. That would be one thing that could really drag the market higher if you were to see some of these mega cap tech stocks. And then we also talk about this all the time, energy and materials and financials and some other industrials, that sort of thing. They could even take a pause because we know that the weight of them in, in the S&P 500 really doesn't even equal like the five largest tech names, that sort of thing. So if we were to see mega cap tech take the leadership role right here, you could have a pretty meaningful breakout into the summer. Which takes us to the next segment. And listen, I still don't really understand this stuff. I know I'm old and I get it. But you know, the, the first of all, I was trying to figure out that GIF thing, which by the way, is still my favorite peanut butter brand. I would love nothing more after this than to have a GIF with toasted bread and a little bit of raspberry jam. But that's for another show. And then, then you threw this whole... What do they call them? The meme, memes, the memes, right? Yeah, Which no, I still meme. don't, I, I still don't freaking get it, by the way. But we have to talk about it because guess what? I'm going to give you two numbers. See if you can fill in the blanks. Yeah, two thousand eight hundred and eighteen percent. That's number one number. Second number is 1,430%. you have any idea what those numbers represent? Well, I suspect it's like how much one of these meme stocks are up That's off correct. the high. Okay, there you go. I nailed it. Ding, AMC, ding, 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 ding. AMC yep. is up 2,800%. 
2,800% year to date. And the GameStop, and I use the, is up 1,430. It's ridiculous. So apparently those are Mimi stocks. And by the way, we're going to have Jeff Hirsch come on later. He's going to go off the tape with us. He's the CEO of Stars, and he'll probably opine a bit about this. But what are your thoughts on this whole thing, Dan Nathan? We've been talking. It seems like this has been a common thread throughout on the tape since we started back in January. I know that Danny has been all over this. I mean, listen, when I look at a company like AMC, forget the pandemic, go back before we even knew what the heck this thing was. I mean, the theater chains were obviously not doing particularly well. You could have said the same thing for GameStop, people going in and buying physical video games in bricks and mortar stores. I just go back to this. I've been looking at AMC this week. In 2018, the company did about 5.45 billion in revenues, about the same amount in 2019. Um, and last year they did 1.24. And we get that. We know that the theaters were forced to be shut. But here's the important part. In 2018, this company earned $1.22. In 2019, they lost $1.08. They were losing money on the same revenue base year over year from 2018 to 2019. Something broke there. It was already broken. So, you know, why are people going into this? name? Well, I think it had similar dynamics to what was going on with GameStop earlier in the year, but it's all just a game, man. I mean, like there's no fundamental reason to be buying this stock here. And it goes back to gamification. It goes on to democratizing information, the easy on-ramps being forced at home, stimulus checks, monies that you can afford to lose, that sort of thing. So to me, we know that this has always gone on in every market. I think to the scale in which it's happening right now, that's what's different. And it's also similar in crypto, but I will tell you this, Look at all those pockets of exuberance over the last, let's call it six to nine months. We've seen SPACs, we've seen high valuation tech IPOs, and now we've seen crypto all down 30, 40% on average, I think, from their highs. There's no reason to believe that this won't end that way too. There's always one winner in all this, and that's the high frequency traders or algo traders that are out there because there's so much volume going through the system right now. But you know what I thought, I thought of this week? Tesla is the original meme stock. When you think about how this has evolved, the ability for a CEO to go on YouTube like Adam Aaron did and say kind of what he wants. I don't know if it's a reg FD violation or not, I don't know I'm saying, but the stuff that he was saying, literally catering to the retail investors. You have Mudrick Capital, good for them, who owns debt in AMC and equity for about an hour. They owned it when they when they bought stock last week on this deal. So so it really is is nuts. And this again, there is no fundamental reason to own AMC, but I was just looking because I was looking this morning. Are there any insider sales at all? Because the minute that you see an insider sale at AMC, and there was one, there was the chief marketing officer sold stock last Friday, May 28th, at $27.42 a share. 15,000 shares, nothing crazy. Yet they priced a deal on Tuesday morning, I guess, following that, because Monday was the holiday after that. So that's the stuff I, I kind of watch behind the scenes. But the way that Tesla, as the original meme stock, has allowed the culture to kind of move away from worrying about the SEC, move away from Reg FD, move away, has kind of allowed this. And then take into account just all the stimulus and all the money pouring into the market. And this is what you have. And I, every time I, I try to take a step back and look at it, it it's going to be obvious down the road, whether like we've talked about before, these altcoins and things that are out there, this is not going to be able to sustain itself. Yes, some coins will remain, but this is the blow off top. How long does this thing percolate? I don't know. But if you own AMC for fundamental reasons, you're, 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 I mean, you should just go to the movies, but but you literally, literally, Mudrick Capital said, oh, we, we sold the stock the same day because we think it's expensive. What? 
you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. Good for them, by the way. And Adam Aaron, like, I'm, I've been looking for the William Wallace for the WSB and Reddit crowd. I mean, Adam Aaron might be, you know, Mel Gibson. I mean, he sort of looked, Mel, he didn't look like Mel But you understand what I'm saying. Like, he is their torchbearer. Like, he has become legendary in a matter of weeks. Good for him, by the way. And I'm not convinced it's all done on an altruistic way. But I mentioned this earlier this week, Dan, that the fact that in 2000, and I want to say 2016, AMC made an all-time high of about $40, give or take. For the next five years, it spent going uh, the chart going from the upper left, as Dennis Gartman says, to the lower right. That was a failing business. To your earlier point about lowering EPS, obviously went from positive to negative in a pretty significant way. That was a failing business long before anybody heard the term COVID. And the fact that somehow magically the business has changed and it's reinvented itself is foolish. And Adam Aaron told you earlier this week, he said, look, buy my stock at your own risk, effectively. It's like when you go to the beach and it says great white sharks in the area, swim at your own risk. It's the same thing here. So I guess good for him. But, you know, this is a greater fool's theory working out in spades. And a lot of people are making money. My real concern is that the majority of people will be left holding the bag. Just my opinion. We'll see what happens. But Danny, you mentioned Tesla. And I know everybody seems to think that Danny Moses has this Jones for Tesla. I don't think that's true at all. I think you've been trying to point out some of the flies in the ointment or some of the potential flaws out there. And I think you've done it extraordinarily eloquently. And now it's starting to sort of reap some benefits because guess what? Since reporting earnings, Tesla's gone from about $740 a share down to the mid five handle, as they say in the business. When the Tesla movie does come out someday, that's when the AMC theaters are going to sell out because it's going to be spectacular. That'll be a reason to own the AMC stock. But listen, what's happening right now to Tesla, I actually think is the brand is being damaged. And it's been the one thing, the intangible value on that company. And I don't care that he's talking about Bitcoin. He can damage him himself. I mean, he has lovers and haters out there and he always will. But the brand itself, like the quality of the product, the way that they treat the consumer, selling these products which don't exist for $10,000 is FSD, which they basically admitted they don't have by putting in these new lasers, which don't even work, things like that. Like there are so many issues with the company right now that it's not worth $500 billion, in my opinion, 400 to 300 which means it could trade at a trillion. It doesn't trade on fundamentals. Like I just said, it's the original meme stock. But I feel like the bloom is coming off the rose. And we had the great Carter Worth on a couple weeks ago. He tweeted out yesterday and he actually mentioned on our show that he thought the stock was going to start trending lower. And it has. It'll ebb and flow here. It'll find a level, find a level, find a level. But writing's on the wall. It's all a matter of time, in my opinion. But the competition's coming. The China sales are horrendous. There's regulatory issues now facing them. And we just saw, to cut to what you probably wanted to talk about, was the interaction with Tesla and the SEC about what went on with him tweeting post Obviously, the tweets that got him into trouble on the 420 takeout, they did nothing. Why? They don't want to be responsible for taking down a multiple hundred billion dollar company or they just don't want to deal with him or they, they fear him. I, I don't know. This this story, if it does unwind and the tide does go out on it, it's going to be one of the most fascinating case studies ever that we're ever going to read about. So what I would say, like there was a lot of news this week and, and we talked about it last week, you know, so all this crypto stuff, why is the guy who's the CEO of a $550 billion electric vehicle company and the CEO of a defense contractor who's sending rockets into space, why is he tweeting about Dogecoin? Why is he creating a holy war with the Bitcoin community? And I think we got our answer this week that they basically had orders for about 
half of the electric vehicles that they had the prior month in China. And we know that, like, think about how much of the bullish narrative about Tesla over the last year or so was about China. They built this gigafactory in Shanghai. It was going to be this huge EV market that dwarfs every other EV market in every other region in the world. So the guy is trying to play some sort of game. Is like, look here, but not there or whatever. It's a total joke. And Danny, you used the word credibility. I think at some point in the not so distant future, man, that is going to be the thing. You know, you can spend all your time on Twitter tweeting about Doge and going on SNL and that sort of thing. At the end of the day, it's about how many cars this company is making, how many they're shipping, and what is the profitability on them? And then what is their going to be their global market share? Because right now, they have a large market share of a very small pie, if you if you think about it, on the, on the E3 front. But again, the competition is here. I swear, with every long and short I look at, I literally try to take the other side is I write down bullet points. I'm like, all right, where can this be wrong? Long or short. I can't come up with one, not because I know the story in, inside and out. I can't come up with one that would validate this type of valuation. But just think about this. Now they have a recall. They don't even have a, an adequate warranty reserve, obviously, for their cars. They certainly don't have the ability to streamline these cars back in and fix various things that are going to go wrong. And China does not mess around with, say what you want about China. They don't mess around with, with this stuff. And it's happening there. So their credibility is being blown out of the water there. It was a U.S. story that made its way to China. But China is the one that's really cramming down and it's having an impact and you're seeing it. And that's going to really hurt them. So last thing, just to bring up again, Fiat Chrysler was the biggest purchaser of these EV credits for the company. I will tell everyone out there, Tesla would never have turned any profit at all without the ability to sell these regulatory credits. That's not an operational thing that they're doing. That's a technical advantage that they had over everyone else out there. As a standalone auto manufacturing company, they don't make money and they're being passed right now by some of the best auto-engineered companies in the world, in Germany, Japan, and the U.S. Yeah, so you said EV credits. The other thing is we know that Q1, they made that quarter. They had a billion and a half dollar benefit from their sale of Bitcoin. I, I don't know if you guys noticed this this morning, but Elon tweeted again, some meme as Guy would call him, of breaking up with Bitcoin. It was a couple of emojis. It was a little meme, that sort of thing. And Bitcoin's down 6% off of that. So what are we what are we supposed to take? The day after this report about really bad Chinese EVs sales that he's breaking up with Bitcoin and he's going to put a couple billion dollar gain or, or it could be much bigger, you know what I mean, on their balance sheet just to kind of, I don't know, the, the whole thing's a joke. I'm kind of done with it. I, hopefully we can avoid it for a couple of weeks, guys. Was not this the impetus for your most recent rot, Danny? So this is just a rot follow-up, as they would say. Is that, am, am I being accurate here? Yeah, this is my rot. I feel like I'm rotting all day right now. But yes, that was my rot, I would say, is a follow-up from the ESG hypocrisy on the MSCI website where the news, the day that news came out, the rating for Tesla just disappeared. Although they were still listed as one of the 41 companies that gets rated. And I thought for sure when I clicked back on that link that they would downgrade them, so to speak, in corporate governance and stuff. But no, they didn't. Still a leader in uh, corporate governance, but we'll, we'll see how long that lasts. Again, I think that the ESG market can be a great thing for stocks and society in the long run, but how it's managed right now is is kind of hypocritical. Yeah, noted. And listen, just, just to sort of tie a ribbon on this for you, Tony Orlando and Dawn fans out there. I mean, the former Ford CEO was on CNBC earlier this week talking about competition. And guess what? It's not coincidental that just around the time that Tesla topped out in terms of their stock price, both Ford and GM have gotten off the mat I think GM making an all-time high and Ford trading at levels we haven't seen in quite some time. And quite frankly, I still think there's room to the upside. Not that I'm looking to play stock market here, but 
you know, those names are sort of got some giddy up. They got some tailwinds for the first time in a while. Yeah, breaking out to multi-year highs. I got to give you credit, Guy, and Fast Money. You've been talking about a seventy number in Ford. You put a 10-time multiple on that. You get to about $17. Even you can do that. I actually did that math. And, and here you are. That stock has gone from literally $12 to, what, uh, a little over 16 in just a matter of weeks. And I think we've collectively been talking about it, that if GM and Ford, if their EV ambitions are just going to get a little bit of that pixie dust, that little Tesla pixie dust valuation stuff, these stocks are going to be re-rated. You've been all over it. Nice call. Tune into Fast Money to get more of the same. And before we get out of here, before we see the great Jeff Hirsch or hear from the great Jeff Hirsch, the CEO of my favorite network, Stars, we have to address sort of the Bob Baffert thing that's taken over the imagination of the horse racing community. I know you have some thoughts on that. Obviously, we had Bob on April 16th, if memory serves. Just some thoughts on what's going on here in the horse racing world. Yeah, so we had Bob on here a couple weeks ago and obviously guy you won on his horse so you know you can't give that money back you know at this point so don't be a hypocrite the second drug test came back positive and if you go back to bob baffert's kind of pr campaign post the first test which guy he should have hired you to kind of go on the pr campaign he actually blamed a groomer that was in his in his stall for taking cough medicine peeing on the hay and then the horse eating the hay and that's how he tested positive yeah the the horse peed on the hay hay is for horses yeah well the groomer peed the horse Uh ate it but you know i have other questions on that as well but that that obviously didn't fly but i think it comes down to was it an ointment was it an injection but whatever it was it was bad oversight on baffert's part and churchill downs is now taking the opportunity to basically ban him from all of their tracks not just churchill and there is an appeal going on there's a third appeal going on right now but it certainly hits his reputation. And I believe Churchill has had it in for him since the 2018 Derby when Justify, who ended up winning Triple Crown that year, turned out he tested positive in California weeks before. But the state of California, lo and behold, withheld that into the 10-day minimum. But anyway, it's technical in nature. But I think they were looking for a reason to get Baffert. Listen, he's not the only trainer to have these issues that it's out there. It's just he's the high-profile one, and I'm sad for him, and I think it's going to take a while to build back that reputation, but obviously he will not be at Belmont this week, and speaking of Belmont, I like the two-horse essential quality. It's It was sired by Tappet, who's won three of his sires, have won the Derby in the last kind of six or seven years, had a bad run at the Derby. I know it's the favorite, but take the two-horse essential quality there, boys. Look at you handicapping here. Danny going with chalk, though, I will mention. When the great Jeff Hirsch comes on in a minute, maybe we can convince him to do a little series on Bob Baffert and horse racing. We'll see. But when we come back, Jeff Hirsch, CEO of Stars. Jeffrey Hirsch is president and CEO of STARS. He's been with the network since 2015 and running it since 2019. Under his leadership, STARS has increased its overall domestic subscriber base and continued to grow its OTT services. Hirsch has played a key role in securing several high-profile projects, including spearheading the expansion of the Power franchise with the spinoff of the Power Book 2 Ghost, starring Mary J. Blige. Prior to joining Stars, Hurst spent more than a decade at Time Warner Cable. Jeffrey, welcome to On the Tape. So, Jeff, obviously, thanks so much for joining Dan and myself on On the Tape. Listen, it's a fascinating story. Stars is by far my favorite cable network, and, and I'm being honest. I think you know that because we talked many months ago. But my question is this. you know, How did a lacrosse player from the University of Pennsylvania, I think you were a netminder, wind up running probably one of the most successful, if not most successful, cable franchises out there. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you both. 
I don't really know, to be honest. I was hired at a business school by Glenn Britt, who is the chairman of Time Warner Cable, which is now Spectrum, to be kind of a alpha test for an MBA manager to run cable systems. And I spent, I would say, 15 of my 21-year career post-business school all over this country running cable systems, thinking I probably was going to work at Time Warner, thinking it was HBO, but instead I ended up in Columbia, South Carolina, or Rochester, New York, and really working with guys in trucks and women and men on phones and really running the local cable operations. My path had crossed with Chris Albrook, who was the CEO of HBO at the time. And fast forward to 2015, Comcast made an ill-fated bid for Time Warner Cable. At the time, Chris was looking for a business partner. He is and continues to be a great creative and looking for somebody to help him transition the business to the digital world and Andy Heller, who was from Turner on the Stars board, introduced us, and the rest, they say, is history. And five years later, here I am talking to you guys. So it's been an interesting ride. I can't say that I've plotted it that way, but it's worked out, and so I've been pretty lucky. Well, it's interesting, Jeff. You and I met on Franklin Field probably a little more than 25 years ago as Guy called you a netminder. That's not what people who know lacrosse call a goalie guy, just to be very clear with you. But Jeff was, he was an excellent goalie. I was an attackman. I'm not sure I got too many balls by him in practice there. But Jeff, when you think about what you just described, your history in cable before you really got into media, I mean, cable has been one of the most competitive businesses in the media landscape for the last, let's call it, 30 years or so. And and you really talked about how you're almost like in the farm team as you were moving your way around the country. You got to the big leagues. How do you think your athletic career playing goalie in the University of Pennsylvania in the Ivy League at a a very high level, how do you think that that experience prepared you for being in such a competitive business and then making it to the top? It's an interesting question. You know, when I was at Dartmouth for business school at the Tuck School, I I coached the Dartmouth women's team my second year. And so I had a great experience both playing with very, I would say, egotistical, aggressive men on one side and coaching women on the other side. And I think it prepared me. I think it gives you a lot of fortitude. You've got to figure out how to come back from loss and deal with that. And I think a lot of the younger generation today hasn't really experienced loss in a way that we did as kids. And I think that hurts the third grade soccer where everybody gets a participation trophy is obviously has changed. I never got a trophy if we lost. So But I think it teaches you, sports teach you how to deal with leadership and how to deal with personalities and be a teammate, but be a leader. And I think coaching women versus playing with men gave me a great perspective on, I think growing up, everybody said that it's all about being equal in the office. And I think it's almost impossible to be equal. It's, you have to be fair, but different. You have to coach and teach each person differently. And I think sports gave me great insight in how to be a better leader is really what it comes down to. Yeah, I think you make a great point. I tell people all the time, I think one of the greatest gifts you can give your kids is a gift of failure. And you let them fail because I think you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. I mentioned that because I watched a lot of the men's lacrosse and the women's lacrosse, by the way, over the last couple of weeks. So my first question to you is, some of these guys and some of these gals are absolute snipers. I mean, you think you get between the pipes and stop some of this stuff? Today, probably not. I mean, the equipment's much lighter, so maybe that helps me with my hand speed. But first of all, I think it was a really bad decision by the Ivies not to play lacrosse this yeah. spring. I think Cornell, Yale, and Penn were probably three of the top five teams in the country coming in this year. And I think you took away just a wonderful opportunity and experience for a lot of young men and women to play competitively and a chance to win a national championship. So if you looked at the weekend, the men's side, at least it was an ACC tournament, unfortunately, because you took some of the best teams out of the country. So I think the Ivies did the kids a disservice by not playing this spring, unfortunately. And if you're a senior at Penn, 
probably had the number two team in the country this year. Are you going to go back for another year versus go to work? Probably not. But look, it's a great sport. I think it's tech catching on all over the world. I mean, look what Tierney did when he went to Denver and now the the Big Ten in, in, that, in those schools. And even look at El Segundo here in California. When I was here in 06, they were just building a lacrosse field. Now you can't even get time for a game. So it's a great sport. It teaches you, like all sports do, how to be competitive, how to win, how to lose, how to be a teammate, how to lead. And it gives you a, a lot of kids, if you look at what they're, a lot of the guys are doing with the Harlem Lacrosse Foundation, where they're putting equipment and sticks in kids' hands, we would never see the sport and great athletes get opportunities. And if you can get to an Ivy because of it, then by all means, it's a home run. So sport gives back a lot more than I think others. I agree with that. And you know, it's interesting, you mentioned that you coached and being a coach is being a mentor. And obviously, Michael Burns, I'm sure, has been an incredible mentor for you. And I want to speak briefly about Michael I know you know this, and hopefully our audience does as well. When Fast Money was starting in 2007, we used to have to go out and solicit people of his caliber to come on the show. Well, he was one of the first guests we ever had, and he's been steadfast in his appearances on our show. He's been a real ally of ours. Can you speak to your relationship with Michael and what you've learned from him? Look, I talked to Michael. He's usually my first. The nice thing for Michael during the pandemic is he's figured out what FaceTime is. And so every morning I wake up to a call with Michael and... He's always thinking about the business. I think he is an innate, curious person, which I think it makes them the best executives. And we're always debating the business, talking about the business. And I think I've learned a lot from Michael in terms of wanting more, not accepting complacency and really building and driving the business. And if you look at what he and John have done over the last 20 years with Lionsgate, going out and buying libraries to the point where we have a 17,000 title library now where content is so important. I don't think people gave them enough credit for their vision and their foresight in terms of where the industry was going to be. And I think they've done a phenomenal job building Lionsgate into the company it is today. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And when he first started coming on, I think it was 2008, you probably know better than I do, but it was a very public dispute is the word I'll choose to use with Carl Icahn. I thought Michael handled it incredibly well. And I'm just curious, and I'm, I'm not looking to play stock market here, neither is Dan, but obviously with what's going on with AMC over the last couple of weeks is fascinating. I think Adam Aaron has taken an approach to it. And I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong, but I'm also sure that as a publicly traded company like Lionsgate is, there have to be conversations on how we would handle certain things. I'm just curious, do you have those conversations? And if so, could you share some insight with us? We talk about almost every aspect that could happen to the business. Now that we're in 58 countries around the world, what is government changing policies do to our business? If you look in France right now, they're looking at a large portion of revenue from non-domestic networks that have to go back to the country and production in the country. And that fundamentally changes the economics for us. We talk about the pandemic and talk about disaster recovery. And we talk about, obviously, you see what happened with AT&T and Elliott and people kind of agitating the stock. And just recently, you saw two huge deals and continued consolidation. And so we debate and talk about all that and try to best position ourselves for our shareholders. But at the end of the day, look, M&A is not a strategy. And at the end of the day, we have a plan that we really like. We're executing against the plan. It's working. And I think investors are really starting to take note. For a while, everybody said in this business, you have to have scale to compete. And I just don't think that's 
scale in the wrong places or scale for the sake of scale doesn't make you successful. What's interesting, Jeff, you talk about some of the M&A. We've seen just this bundling and then unbundling. We've seen large telcos take shots at media assets. We've seen other big media companies try to come together. In the last month, the about face, let's say, that AT&T has done with Time Warner. In my career in the business, I've never seen such a huge deal unwound so quickly that was one strategic vision. What did that mean for you guys? Again, you said you're executing against your plan. You don't think you need to have the scale that, let's say, Disney and Warner and some of these guys tried to achieve over the last decade or so. But what does it mean when you see these deals coming undone? I'm a pretty simple guy and I like to keep business simple. At the end of the day, we make television. No one dies if a show doesn't get put on the air at the right time. But I think where people get in trouble is they start to believe that they can do other things and they get outside of their swim lane. And the history has been not kind to distribution companies buying content and content companies buying distribution. It's just a different skill set and a different animal. I happen to work on both sides of the business, but on scale, it's really hard to put them together. But I think what you've seen is the business is unfolded in a way where you're going to have these three tiers of streaming services. You've got these big, broad that want to get to scale to compete with Netflix. You've got the Netflixes, you've got Disney Plus, you've got Amazon. Soon you'll have Warner Brothers Discovery, Peacock. And these guys need to get to 300 million subs worldwide to be successful, partly because you need that scale in advertising, not just to pull dollars from television, but to pull dollars from Facebook and Instagram. We're not playing that game. We're not trying to program all things for everybody in the home. We're not doing sports. We're not doing weather. We're not doing kids. We're not doing animation. We're really focused on putting content, but it's narratives by, for, and about women and underrepresented audiences on the network. And so we can get to, as we said, 60 million subscribers worldwide, get to a 20% margin long-term and have a really great profitable business for our investors and be a complementary service to those big, broad services, much like we are today. We're very complementary to Charter today or Spectrum today. Those are big, broad entry points of content into the home. We sit on top of those guys. In the new world, we're going to do the same. And so we feel like we're just pivoting the same business model we had in the linear world to the digital world. And and there's a lot of room for us to be very successful. The last couple of years, I mean, all we hear about is bundling, unbundling. I mean, it's seemingly an endless stream of going back and forth. But my sense is, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but I don't think it matters for you. I think you guys win either way. Can you sort of speak to that and how you look at this whole phenomenon that's been going around? The bundling and the unbundling and the bundling and the unbundling, I think the one thing that people forget about, it's the consumer's always been the same. The difference is the technology for how you distribute it. And I don't think you should confuse technology with the consumer. The one thing that cable has done a phenomenal job of that they've never gotten credit for is the simplicity of putting a bunch of different cable networks from different companies together in a simple and easy place and charging the economics for that value. Now, I think they've got a little out of hand on the price increases and customer service is a different animal, but the value of, you know, look what Kayak has done for the travel sites online. There's so many of them. Kayak came over the top and said, we'll just sort them all for you and you can pick the best of it. And it's made it easy for consumers. So I think there's going to be a place where you start to see these large streaming services say, I don't want to give it away anymore and I can't continue to barnstorm advertising. I'm going to try to give consumers value other places and we're a perfect partner to do that. So there'll be some people who will want to bundle with stars because the value that we bring together in terms of our demographic and their demographic work very well at a price. But there's also people who really just want stars as a standalone and will go to our direct consumer app and take it for that $8.99 price point and not want other things. And so We're trying to be really agnostic in terms of how we deliver our content, whether it's through Amazon or our own app or 
through Izzy and Claro in Brazil, we're much more wholesale hybrid D2C than versus 100% D2C where we have to own the consumer because we want to sell ads. So we can be a little more flexible and put our product wherever the consumer wants to see it, whether you're on Orange or on our direct-to-consumer app. We obviously want the data, but if that's where you want to have it, we want to be there. So you speak of that confidence, your streaming subscribers were up nearly 70% year over year. And you talked about that diversity of the content focus. Does that have a large part to do with the growth that you've had in streaming? Or was it a bit of a COVID moment? Or was it just the acceleration of certain secular trends that were already in place? Look, I think we have seen engagement send from about nine hours three years ago to about 14 hours a month per subscriber this year. Obviously, the pandemic had a lot of discovery for Stars, and I think as Guy will probably tell you, Stars is in this kind of rebirth in a sense where people are finding us for the first time. I think the pandemic helped consumers find Stars for the first time, but stay with us. And so churn this month was at an all-time low. It continues to come down. So while we benefited from great discovery, I think we've also held on to those consumers who've discovered us for the first time and seeing our great content. We just had earnings last Thursday where we guided to say that fiscal calendar 22 subscribers will be stronger than we were in 21. And that's because we're coming into our largest and most robust slate in the history of the business. Last year, we had six big scripted shows on. This year, we'll have 12. And what we'll have also coming into this July is we'll have a piece of content on every week, 52 weeks a year for our two core demos. So you don't have people clicking in to watch Power clicking out at the end of the 10th episode then waiting to come back the next year. We'll start with Raising Canaan, which is 50s character in 1990, Jamaica, Queens, and his mom teaching him the game. Then we'll come into BMF, which is Black Mafia Family, which is the story about Big Meech and his brother creating this enormous drug empire. We'll come back to the first power spinoff in Ghost for season two. Then we'll bring the Tommy spinoff Force on. And so Every week, 52 weeks a year, we'll now have a piece of content on the year, which should bring churn down to low single digits and accelerate both revenue and profitability for the company. Which is absolutely genius. And I'm not going to pretend I'm some cool cat because I'm anything but, but I will tell you, I stumbled upon power with my wife a few years ago, and it's absolutely riveting. I will tell you, in my opinion, that the only likable character, in my opinion, in the entire show, for some reason, is Tommy. I mean, Tommy is the most ruthless one in the gang, but there's something sensitive about him. It's fascinating. My question to you is, how does it all work? Did 50 Cent just fall into your lap? Did you go out and find him? How did the show get presented to stars? Because it's a fascinating show with amazing people behind it. I think there's three core foundational people that really put together. One of them is 50, obviously, had the idea. He connected with Mark Canton, who's a legendary producer, has done 300 in movies like that, who then went out and found a very talented and wonderful writer in Courtney Kemp. And the three of them together, working very closely with Chris Albrecht, who was my predecessor in the job, who's a legend, I think, in content and the business. Every great show on HBO was from Chris. And the four of them really put power together and built this franchise. And then over the last couple of years, as the characters had their own strength, we decided to think about doing the spinoff so that we could actually feed the audience 52 weeks a year. And so the Raising Canaan spinoff that comes July 18th is 50 at 15 in Jamaica, Queens in 1991. The music is spectacular. You've got the salt and pepper eight ball jackets. You've got the graffiti. Twin Towers are still up. And it's Patina Miller who was on Madam Secretary, who was a Tony Award winning actress, playing his mom, teaching him the game. And it is, I've seen all the episodes. It's as good as anything that will be on TV this year. 
the Tommy spinoff. I just saw the first two episodes. Everybody thinks he ends up in California. So there'll be a surprise there. But that one's great with a huge cast as well. And I'm really excited about that. And Ghost broke all the kind of power records as the first spinoff. So I think we've got really three huge temples around off the power spinoff. And so it's kind of like Marvel, but everybody's bad. Yeah, listen, again, the shows are incredible. And my sense is, and I don't know anything, as you already know, but my sense is Tommy winds up in the Midwest somewhere, like Kansas City or Chicago or something. But we'll see how it plays itself out. But you would think the obvious demographic for that show or males, I would imagine. But my sense is that's not the case. Can you speak to the audience Specifically about power, but maybe in just in general, what you're looking to do at Stars. 70% of our audience is women. It's all kind of women. So power is 65% African-American women. Outlander is 80% white women from all over the country. And so our real focus is putting narratives on the air that are by and about and for women. And we just launched an initiative called Take the Lead, which is really our telling our brand story, which is we are the leader in the industry in putting representation on the screen, behind the screen, in the director's chair, and even the office. 49% of our directors are people of color. That is 120% higher than the industry. We have 63% of our series leads are people of color and 60% are women. 75% of my senior most direct reports are women and half of them are women of color. And that's really unique for the business. And so in order to be authentic and real, if you're going to tell stories that are by and for and about women, you've got to put women in positions to make it authentic and women in positions in the business to really make sure that we're picking the right shows. And so I feel really great about what we've done. We launched this initiative because we felt we had a social responsibility to tell the world that it was okay to take a Katori Hall, who is a playwright, an African-American woman who never ran a show before and invests $100 million behind a show like P-Valley, and it's an outsized hit. And you know, I think there's been trepidation in the industry to do that. We think it's great for our business, and we've seen that in our results. So we feel like it's the right thing to do, and we've done it, and we'll continue to do it. I'm going to get a little off topic here, but a couple of years ago, as I finished watching the Yankee game and I went up to my bedroom and my wife was watching something. I looked over. I'm like, oh my, what are you watching? It was soft pornography. I'm like, what the hell is this? It was Outlander. But everybody loves Sam Hugan. And he seems, if they're casting the next Bond after this Bond, in my opinion, it should be Sam. Any insight as to if he's got a, a leg up on the Bond series? Now you'll have to ask Amazon. You can't ask me. But <laughs> Sam has been a phenomenal actor and a great supporter of the network for almost 10 years now. And he and Katrina have built such a wonderful chemistry, both on the screen and off the screen. And they've been such great ambassadors for stars. And we just wrapped season six. And so we'll bring that back to the consumers probably in the first quarter next calendar. So we're thrilled about that. We Sam and Graham during their off season did a travel show called Men in Kilts, which was them traveling around Scotland in a and a van, and that was super successful. We just premiered it in the UK, and people are going crazy for it there. And he's just such a tremendous talent. We're lucky to have him on the network for such a long period of time. So, Jeff, you just spent a little time talking about your company's focus on diversity, not just on screen, but also in your office space. It's pretty fascinating to me a couple of years ago when HBO put on Watchmen. And I think that there were just a lot of viewers in America who were kind of shocked about that opening 10-minute sequence. It was about something that they didn't know whether it was real or not. And here we are this month, the 100-year anniversary of the Black Wall Street race massacre here. And talk to us a little bit about the responsibility that you have now from a content standpoint, because I think America like literally was awakened to this thing that happened 100 years ago because of a television show that was on cable TV. And it's pretty fascinating to me. You know, we just did another study with the UCLA storytellers that talked about our statistics in terms of representation in the business 
we just did a study with the consumer and what the consumer is looking for. And I think over 70% of consumers are looking for shows that they watch that are representative of the world that they live in and diversity. And with the other thing, interesting thing was I think over 60% said who sits in the director's chair is important to them in terms of the story being authentic and real. And so look, television has always had a great responsibility, whether it's through news and reporting nightly news to telling stories that is fair and representative of the world that we live in today. And I think, again, Chris had a great vision. We were doing this eight years ago and we've been way ahead of it. And it's been good for our business. I mean, let's be honest, it's good for society and it's good that we're a role model that way. But it's been, McKinsey just authored this huge report of, I think they're saying Hollywood's missing out on $10 billion of profitability because of the lack of diversity and inclusion in the business. We couldn't agree more that it's the right thing to do for our business. I think good content is good content. It doesn't matter who's on the screen. It should look like the world that we live in today. And that's what people watch. And if they don't, then they don't need to be stars consumers. And I'm happy not to have them. So we've been spending a lot of time on your TV franchises here. We know that there was a lot of production on the big screen on on movies that was stopped down during the pandemic here. And, you know, it's interesting because Guy had just mentioned AMC. There was a lot of chatter pre-pandemic about the death of the movie theater. It was these OTT services and and it was direct to consumer. And this was going to be a huge competitive force in the movie business. We saw some good numbers over Memorial Day weekend. They're still down from the 19 and 18 levels in a pretty big fashion here. Can you give us any insight of how you think the back half of 2021 looks like in in the movies? We know there's like a year and a half worth of just blockbusters ready to come, but this kind of hybrid model of direct to streaming and the theaters, is this going to accelerate pretty dramatically over the next few years? Look, I think we learned a lot during the pandemic in terms of the flexibility of the model. And I think there's certain movies that need to be in theaters and have to be in theaters and should be experienced in theaters. And And I do believe the theater business is going to come roaring back in a big way. There's just nothing like, you know, I remember my dad taking me to Star Wars. There's nothing like going to see that movie. And I, I can still remember that today. If it was sitting at home watching Star Wars with my dad and the phone's ringing and my dad's getting up reading the page, I don't think it's the same experience. And I think that's true of some of the Marvel movies. And I think the John Wicks, I mean, there's just things that you have to see on a big screen. And I think people are itching to get back into the theater. I mean, A Quiet Place, I think, Two outperformed opening weekend one with maybe 70% capacity. So, and I think the younger generation is looking forward to getting back into the theaters. So I feel really strongly that it's going to come roaring back quicker than people think. But we've also learned that there's this great flexibility in the model. And I think what Joe Drake has done on the motion picture side at Lionsgate is really built movies that are actually in that sweet spot of whether if they think it's going to be a home run in the theater, you can go to the theater, PVOD, then to, as we've announced, on to Stars. Or you can pull it out and sell it to a streamer if you feel differently about it. But we're not doing these billion-dollar franchises that you have to have global distribution to really support and become profitable. So we have a lot more flexibility, I think, than some of the the really big studios that have to put these things in theaters all over the world. So, Jeff, this is a little meta here. You talked about your ambitions as far as streaming. You obviously have a great movie franchise. Your linear TV is great. But what about podcasting? Everyone's in podcasting. That's the big joke, right? Well, all the all the music streaming services are going big into podcasting. Do you guys think about audio? Is podcasting a big part of that or might it be a big part of it? Because again, your consumer likely is digesting this sort of content somewhere else. Is it somewhere that fits into your plan? I think podcasting and audio comes into play where we actually take something that we think is great, find a writer and turn it into a show. You know, we're really into that kind of lean back. We want the consumers to sit with stars and escape and into the world like Outlander 
it's a big escape for a lot of people. You know, we, we find with some of the women that watch the show is they don't watch it on a big screen, even though they have it. They put it on their iPad and or on their own device and they go to a certain part in the house and it's their hour alone from their families and escape. And so that's the business that we're in. And getting back to what we talked about, about knowing what we're good at and what we're not good at. We don't know anything about podcasts and audio. We know how to find podcasts and make them into great TV shows. And I think that's what we'll continue to do. If we get distracted from our core mission, which is putting great TV on the air and getting to 60 million subscribers with podcasts, I think that would be a mistake for us. I don't know what awards there are right now. I'd lose track of them, but Mary J. Blige should win something for what she's done because she is ridiculous. I mean, she's so believable. And my sense is she's such a lovely human being and she plays such a intimidating person on the show. It's incredible to watch that transformation. Before we get out of here, can you sort of speak to what it's been like working with her to the extent that you've had that type of relationship? She is, I mean, if you know her history and her story, I mean, the fact that she is where she is today and not with us is amazing. And she's got such great fortitude and strength. And and she's just such a powerful person and an amazing woman. And I think you hear that in her music and you see it in her acting. And I think she'll go back out on tour in the next year as well in between the show. And we're lucky to have her. But I think what she brings to the set every day in terms of her focus and her energy and her, her strength, it rubs off on the rest of the cast. And I think you can see it on the screen. And that's I always know that when I go to a cast dinner or I go to a premiere and you can see the cast really likes each other and is having fun and the chemistry is in the room and you know it will trade to the screen, you know you've got a hit. And I think she has really made Ghost, obviously along with, with Michael Rainey as the lead and, and a Tory coming from the original. But I think she makes that show that show and we couldn't be happier to have her. No, and you should be. It's an amazing, it's an amazing series, and I can't wait for the time. All of them. I'm really looking forward to it, and we'll see if he winds up in Kansas City or Chicago, Tommy. But you know, for another podcast for another day, Jeff Hirsch. Thanks for joining Dan and myself on On the Tape. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.